And you're already at Ephesians 1, right? 17 through 23 is what we'll be looking at. Last Sunday, we looked at the beginning of Paul's prayer in verses 15 and 16. It's like this whole section, verse 15 to 23, is Paul's prayer, right? It's his prayer for the Ephesians. And we looked at the first part of it in verse 15 and 16. Um, That's kind of the thanks and gratitude section, we would call it, where he continuously tells the Ephesians that he was continually or continuously praising God uh, because of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. This morning, we're going to look at his petition. So last week was kind of his praise. This week, we're going to look at his petition, what he asked the Lord for on their behalf. And might be a good time to warn you that this section is really like a theological tour de force. It's, it's pretty weighty. It's pretty heavy duty. And uh, I spent quite a bit of time trying to just figure out how to explain these doctrines and the way this passage is written. It was just, you ever just get really frustrated when you can't get your mind around something, you know? And, you know, I don't have much hair, so there wasn't anything to pull out. But you know, I was grabbing at it. I mean, it was just like, man, I can't get my mind around some of the stuff in this text. And, and I just realized that it, it, is, it is one of those sort of mind-blowing, big sections. And so uh, you're going to want to just, you know, pay close attention, take as much notes as you can, and just listen. I think it's befitting that I pray again. Father, um, we ask really the same thing that Paul asked in a way here, that um, that you would grant us the spirit of wisdom and knowledge, um, the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge that is in Christ. And, uh, and I know there's some big stuff here, some weighty stuff, some difficult and challenging things to, to behold. Um, and I just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move in power today to, to make the truth known. And not just known, but believed and acted upon. And so, Holy Spirit, come and, and help us this morning. God, send the Spirit to help your children. And, and for anyone else that might be here that's just visiting, that's not really into church or any of those things like I was years ago, I pray that you would bless them as well, that you would maybe open their eyes to the truth. And may you be glorified in this place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's get right into it. You guys ready? 17a. Like I said, it's, it's pretty weighty stuff, and so just maybe even be praying as we're moving through it that God would open your minds or that he would keep me on track, because this is, uh, I don't know if I'd call the scripture intimidating, but for whatever reason, this text is one of those ones that's just kind of tough. Let's begin with 17a. He says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you Okay, so this is the point in his prayer where he transitions from thanks and gratitude, which we learned really is the way that we should begin our prayers to God. We should begin with thanks and gratitude and the glory of God in these things. And this is that, that pivot point now. This is the transition where he moves to petition, right? That the Lord our God, the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give you. So here he begins to petition. And the first thing that we notice too here is, uh, before he even gets to the petition, is, it, is who it is that he's praying to. He's praying to God the Father, right? God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, really the Father of Jesus Christ, and the Father of glory. So he's, his prayer is directed to God the Father. The Bible, generally speaking, teaches us to address our prayers to God the Father, You know, a great example of this would be the Lord's Prayer, right? When the Lord's disciples, you know, the men that he was training for ministry, asked him to teach them to pray, he gave them a sort of model, right? We call it the Lord's Prayer. How did Jesus start that prayer? He said what? Our Father, right? Our Father in heaven. Jesus showed his disciples that prayer should be addressed to God the Father. Uh, And the same thing applies to us, obviously, Um, I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about this. He says, many Christians believe that the hallmark of spirituality is to pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we turn to the scriptures, we discover that that is inaccurate. The Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator, not the end. He is the one who brings us to the Father. 
We go to the Father by Him. He is the great high priest. He is our representative. Normally, we do not pray to Him but to the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Lord Jesus Christ, relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's completely biblical, that statement. Now, why would I bring this up? Why is it important maybe just to recognize this, uh, to recognize or to establish this order for prayer, this prayer order to the Father? Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because we have a very deceitful, powerful adversary, the devil. He is always working to mislead us and to persuade us to put false emphasis in certain matters. Always. I mean, that's like his objective for Christians. Especially when it comes to God and truth, Scripture, these things. The devil would love for us to focus entirely, entirely on God the Son and forget about God the Father. He would. Now, we would all probably at this level in our faith and life, we would probably go to, you know, let's say we visit a church and all they did was talk about Jesus and prayed to Jesus and all this stuff, and none of us would probably pick up on the inaccuracy of these prayers or this ministry that's directed only to Jesus, right? We would go and, wow, that's a Christ-exalting church. We would say that. And yet, the word here teaches us something differently. And I'm just telling you, the devil would love for us just to focus on the Son and to forget about the Father or to focus entirely on the Father and to forget about the Son, to forget about the Holy Spirit, to focus on the Holy Spirit only and forget about the Father and the Son, right? And that's massive in the Pentecostal movement today. It's all Holy Spirit. It's all Holy Spirit. Everything's Spirit, 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 once in a while, Jesus. Spirit, 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 God the Father. Spirit, Spirit, right? Total emphasis on one over the other. And, I, and if you have a Pentecostal background, I don't mean to be offensive. I'm just pointing out the reality of it. There is an imbalance there. And I would say that at this church, if we were going to be imbalanced, we would be prone to being imbalanced about Jesus because we're kind of a gospel-centered, Jesus-forward, Christ-exalting kind of church. We make much of Jesus in this church. And so even the Scripture here speaks to me saying that, watch it, you have the Father, you have the Spirit as well. The devil, his goal is to defame and defraud all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And one of his tactics is to get Christians to emphasize one over the other, to get a sort of tunnel vision, if you will, to only see the Lord Jesus, to only see the Father, to only see the Spirit. He wants us to play favorites. He wants us to play or to be partial, if you will, toward one or the other. The devil wants us to completely be misled into focusing most of, if not all of, our attention on one, which I will tell you, I believe, the, the course there, if you're focused on one, the course is apostasy. It ends in apostasy, which is false belief. It does. I mean, if all you do is emphasize one aspect of the Christian faith or one, you know, person of the Godhead, you know, the natural course or outcome is apostasy. And you can see this in some of the Christian cults where, you know, Jehovah is the sole focus of that religion or that cult. And it's just, it leads to more and more apostasy or it leads to the inevitable, which is apostasy, full-blown unbelief or a forsaking of the actual truth. We must remember that the devil's number one goal is to destroy God's creation, even the faith that God has created in us. So if our prayers, if our prayers are directed to the Son or directed to the Holy Spirit, this is evidence that we have been either misled or that we are ignorant of what Scripture clearly teaches. And so we must guard our hearts and our minds. We must guard the truth. We must make sure that we address our prayers to God the Father. Well, here, here's an example for you of how we should actually pray. All right, here would be the order, all right? We should pray in the Spirit, right? Ephesians 6, 18, to the Father, Matthew 6, 9, in the name of the Son, John 14, 13, right? So we pray in the Spirit to the Father in the name of the Son. You might want to write that down. That's how we should pray. This is the biblical model 
or style or mode of prayer. And I'll tell you this, when we do things biblical, biblically, whether it be prayer or anything else, these things become very powerful. They become effective, especially prayer. When we pray biblically, when we pray the, God, the way that God has laid out in the Scripture, these prayers become a powerful, powerful weapon against the adversary, against the flesh, whatever it is. I would say that when we pray biblical prayer like this, when we pray in the Spirit to the Father in the name of the Son, those prayers pack a full punch. They pack a full punch. As it says in James 5.16, the prayers of a righteous man are what? They are powerful and effective. Who is a righteous man or woman? One who prays biblically. One who is right in their actions. One who does things biblically. One who seeks to please God in all things. And so we can see there's a, there's a, a close tie to powerful prayer and being righteous Translation, praying biblically. Being biblical means to be right. It means to be righteous. So a righteous person is one who prays prays biblically, and that is why his or her prayers are powerful and effective. And of course, if we feel that our prayers are weak, if our prayers are ineffective, the first thing we should do is evaluate how we pray. Are we praying In the Spirit, to the Father, in the name of the Son? It's a great question to ask ourselves because I think so often I feel like my prayers ricochet all over the room and they don't get from point A to point B and that they don't have much force behind them. And yet we read in the Scripture, Jesus says, ask anything in my name and I will make it come to pass. And of course that doesn't mean I'd really like a Cadillac Escalade. I've prayed that. I have a Sienna, so it doesn't work. Well, the idea is that you would pray things that align with God's will, okay? I mean, that's the truth. But, you know, if we pray biblically, if we follow this sort of model, and we have to say to ourselves, maybe the reason why my prayers are ineffective or they lack power or that things aren't happening the way that I'm praying, maybe we're not praying for the right things, number one, but number two, maybe we're not praying with the right model in the Spirit to the Father in the name of the Son. Now, I just have to ask, is anyone here wondering what it means to pray in the Spirit? (laughs) Praise God. Because when I I wrote that, I was like, I better tell people what that means because I'm not even sure I know what it means. Is it like, ah, la, la, la? No, it's not that. You know, it's it's none of that stuff. It's It's not tongues, okay? It's not, you know, she left on a Honda or any of that. Doesn't mean anything like that. Of course, people have defined praying in the Spirit to be a certain thing. People that, you know you know, ascribe to a particular mode of Christianity, if you will, or whatever it is. It's it's none of that. It really is very simple. I'll give you a simple explanation before moving on. Praying in the Spirit does not refer to the words we are saying during prayer. It refers to how we are praying. Okay, so it has to do with how we pray. Praying in the Spirit is praying according to the Spirit's leading. Okay? I think in a way what that means is that we don't have our prayers written out. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're not liturgical or that they follow a, a, you know, a format because Jesus taught the disciples a format, our Father in heaven. It doesn't speak against that, but it's the idea of entering into prayer and allowing the Spirit to lead you as you pray and to pray for the things that He brings to mind. Because He will often bring Susie to mind. We need to pray for her health. Let the Spirit lead you in prayer and during prayer. It, praying in the Spirit literally means, that the most basic definition means to pray as the Spirit leads you. So that's what it means. So it's not tongues, it's not you know, some kind of other thing or anything like that at all. It just means to be led. And I tell you what, we've had, the elders and, and I, we've had some of the best times of prayer in the Spirit because we have an idea of some things that we need to pray for, maybe some of you or whatever, and we do hit on those names and all that, but we really just open up the time for the Spirit to lead us in prayer and to, to put things on our minds and on our hearts to pray for, and, and that's, that's really what it means. So I think all of us, if you pray, you pray in the Spirit, right? Because you're, you know, you're asking the Spirit to lead or that you are being led by the Spirit. That's what it means, okay? So, whew, pressure's off now. It's not some kind of special format. If you don't pray in the Spirit, you're probably not a true believer. These are things that people are saying. Okay, wow, not true. Another thing to notice 
is the phrase right there in the text, may give you, may give you. Paul wants the Father, the Father of glory, to give the Ephesians something. Petition, right? He, he, he wants the Father to help them. He wants the Father to provide something that will help them, something important. Have you ever prayed that God would give something or provide something for a person or another believer, right? You know, man, I'm just praying tonight, Lord, that you would give Colby wisdom as he aims to make this decision, right? You petition God. That's essentially what he's doing here. And I do pray that the Father would give Colby wisdom. I don't know where he's at, uh, right? Elders at the church need wisdom. But that would, be like, that would be like beseeching the Father to provide something for someone. And that's essentially what he's doing here. That's what he prayed for, or how he prayed, we'll say. Now look at 17b. The spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is what he says. Paul asked the Father to give the Ephesians two things. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation. Spirit is an interesting word. It's pneuma in Greek. And we get the word pneumatic from it, which means to be filled with air. Hopefully I'm not while I preach. Um, It can mean air pressure or to use a tool that utilizes air or air pressure, pneumatic, right? I used to have this wheelbarrow that had pneumatic tires on it. They were tires that had air in them. Never had air in it when I went to use it. Never. Just completely flat every time. It's like, this is worthless to me. Home Depot, thank you. In the New Testament, pneuma is used in reference to uh, the Holy Spirit, in reference to a way of thinking, and in reference to wind, okay? The idea here is that Paul was asking the Father to send the Holy Spirit to blow or to breathe wisdom and revelation upon the Ephesians. That's essentially what he's praying here. Interestingly, the Holy Spirit is often symbolized by wind in the Scriptures. He is. In Acts 2, we read that the Holy Spirit blew like a rushing wind into the upper room on the day of Pentecost. In John 3, we read that the Holy Spirit moves like the wind. He is unpredictable, and yet when He shows up, He is obvious, right? That's like all of John 3, 1 through 15, basically. In Job 33, we read that the Holy Spirit is called the breath of the Almighty. That's a really amazing sort of title for or description of the Holy Spirit. Paul, Paul basically in this text was praying Job 32.8 over the Ephesians that the Father, right, in that verse he's called the Almighty, would send the Holy Spirit to breathe understanding upon the Ephesians. So that's what he's praying for here. Now, we need to be careful not to get confused, okay? Paul knew that the Ephesians had already received the Holy Spirit and were saved. He knew this about them, right? He could tell because they had faith in the Lord Jesus and they were bearing some of the fruits of the Spirit, right? What did we read about last week? Love, uh, uh, love toward all the saints. Love is one of the fruits of the Spirit. He, he knew that they had the Holy Spirit. He knew that they were saved, okay? So he wasn't asking the Father to send the Holy Spirit to regenerate them and, and to save them for the first time. Nothing like that at all. He was asking for the Spirit, for God to send the Spirit to do something additional. Maybe we would call it a deeper work, if you will. Now, wisdom is Sophia in Greek, which means to have the ability to direct one's mind toward a full understanding of something. And then revelation is apocalypsis. We've heard of the word apocalypse, which is the revelation of Christ, right? Uh, Apocalypsis, which means to make something known. So we have Sophia, which means to point, it means for someone to have the ability to to look at or to direct their mind towards understanding something, and then we have revelation, which is to make something known. Paul basically prayed that the Father would send the Holy Spirit to breathe on the Ephesians an ability to pursue a fuller or the fullest understanding of something. That's what we're reading here. Now the question becomes, what did Paul want them to be able to pursue, right, wisdom and to understand, revelation? What was it that he wanted them 
to know what did he want the Holy Spirit to help them understand. That would be our question at the end of 17b. The knowledge of him. The knowledge of him. The knowledge of who? The knowledge of the beloved, right? He's still speaking of the beloved, which is Christ. This all has to do with God send the Spirit to give them, to provide them with wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. That is what Paul is praying for When he wrote the knowledge of him, he had three things in mind, okay? Maybe three aspects of the knowledge of Christ or three examples of it or three parts of it, if you will. And he listed them in verses 18b and 19, and we're going to get to them in a moment, but we need to deal with 18a first, right? 18a, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Paul also prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Now let's break this down, all right? Right from the text. Eyes means sight. This is pretty elementary stuff, right? Hearts means inner being. It's not the massive muscle pumping blood throughout your body. It is the essence of who you are. It is the center of who you are, the whole being. It's the inner being. And enlightened means to make known, okay? So Paul prayed that the Spirit would not only breathe wisdom and revelation on the Ephesians, but that he would, the Spirit would also give them the ability to see, internalize, and understand the things that he listed in the rest of the passage. The things that have to do with the knowledge of Christ. We must all remember a very important biblical truth, and that is that truth is what? Spiritually discerned, right? Spiritually understood. And we must also know that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who discerns it for us. The Spirit makes the truth known to us. The Spirit makes the knowledge of Christ known to us. The Spirit makes our hearts receptive to the truth. He cultivates them and makes them the fertile ground where the seeds of truth can be planted and take root. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth, John 16, 13. In our text, we see that the Spirit is also the Spirit of wisdom and the Spirit of revelation. Now know this, Without the Spirit's eye-opening, heart-enlightening work, we would not be able to understand the truth at all. Apart from the Spirit and His work, truth always falls on deaf ears, dull minds, and dead hearts. It's the reality of it. We, in our natural state, are not receptive to the truth, nor can we understand it, comprehend it. We have no interest in it. We all say that we want the truth and all these things as natural people do all the time and endlessly, but they really they don't want the truth of God. They don't want the Scripture, which is the truth. It is true, though, however, that believers have been given a new heart, but we still need the Spirit's presence and power when it comes to understanding the truth. It's not like when you get saved, all of a sudden you can, you know, nail down all of God's mysteries and all this theology and doctrine, and you just, you know, it just every time you open the Bible, I know exactly what that means. No, we still, even though we have new hearts and we're new creations, we still need the Spirit to perform miracles in us whenever we open the Scripture. We have this thing called flesh. We have what Paul referred to as the old man. I hate that old son of a gun. He always rises up and screws things up for me all the time, or he blocks me from understanding things, or he leads me down these paths of flesh and pleasure and sin. You know, I can't stand the guy. I've been shooting him for about 14 years now. He has resurrection power for some reason. You know, as soon as I think he's dead, he shows up and goes, what's up, homie? I'm like, no, I don't want to hang with you today. We're going to be on the corner drinking 40s, doing stupid stuff, right? You know, nobody in here understands that except a couple of us. We have this flesh and we have this old man and it's like, and, and he does his very best to pummel the truth. The devil works him, you know, 
So having a new heart is not enough. Being a new creation is not enough. That's like a starting point so the truth begins to make sense to us. But the Spirit needs to still carry on this work. Now Paul understood this. He understood this about the Ephesians. He understood this about everyone and anyone who would ever read this book. He understood this, and that is why he prayed for the Spirit to enlighten them, to open up their hearts, to enlighten the eyes of their hearts, to illumine, if you will. He understood that. He knew that the Spirit would have to do an eye-opening and heart-opening work before they could understand the wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of Christ. Now, what three things did Paul have in mind here? What, what, what did he want the Ephesians to understand about the knowledge of Christ? Right Now we're getting to it. Look at 18b. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Okay, stop right there. The first thing is the hope to which he has called you. Hope is an expectation or belief in the fulfillment of something desired. God had called the Ephesians to salvation, right? And to the spiritual blessings of verses 3 to 14, which were absolutely mind-blowing, right? Their faith in the Lord Jesus was evidence of their calling to those things. Now, Paul prayed that the Spirit would illumine their heart so that they could understand God's calling and know the hope that accompanies that calling. Now, I believe the primary thing Paul had in mind here was inheritance. That aspect of the knowledge of Christ is what he wanted them to get. And more, but that in particular here. Believers are what? They are heirs of an inheritance. Verse 11, right? We read that. We studied that. God is preparing that inheritance for us, right? And one day... He will provide it. He will give it to us. He will give it to the Ephesians. They already, well, I don't know if they have it yet because I don't know if the, the full measure of it has been put out there. It hasn't really because the world doesn't belong to us yet. The kingdom hasn't come yet. So, you know, I guess part of it you get when you go up in glory, but the rest of it comes later. I don't know how it works. But for the most part, that's what we're talking about here. I think we're talking about inheritance. I think that's what he's pointing to. I think he's saying to the Spirit or to God, send the Spirit to help them understand what that means. Now, we know that we have an inheritance coming. When the Ephesians read this, I would imagine they felt the same way. But when we know, when we realize that we have an inheritance coming, what does that produce? Hope. Hope, right? Because hope is like, it's like awaiting something amazing to come and believing that it's coming and waiting patiently for it to come. Some of us impatiently for it to come. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would know this hope, the hope of what God had called them to. Salvation, absolutely. All the spiritual blessings, absolutely. But I think in particular, inheritance. Hope based on God's promises, right? Because that's what inheritance is, is real hope. Hope that is based on God's promises is sustaining hope. Hope that is based on God's promises is lasting hope. It is immutable hope, which does what? Produces joy, unspeakable joy, unshakable joy. If we base our hope on something other than God's promises, at some point our hope will become decimated. It will. Because nothing lasts. Relationships don't last. Friendships don't last. Bank accounts don't last. Stock market don't last. Mutual funds decimated a few years ago. If we put our hope in what we have or in our relationships, then our hope is susceptible, completely susceptible. It can be decimated at any moment. A tragedy strikes. Stock market changes, what have you. The only sure thing that can sustain our hope, which does produce joy, is the truth. It's the promises of God. What does the scripture say of the truth, which represents God's promises? They endureth forever. The word of God never fails. It never stops. It endures forever. 
Think of God's promises in terms of that enduring, eternal thing. There's an eternality about God's promises, but there's no eternality with your bank account or with your marriage or anything. And I'm not saying, oh, let's just give up on all those things. No, those things are, those things have all been put there for you to use for the glory of God and expansion of His kingdom. That's why all those things, you've been given the relationships, the marriage, all those things, they're all there for the glory of God, for your joy, for the glory of God. But, you know, we must realize that we can't keep our hope fixed on those things. 1 Peter 1, 3-4 says, Believers have been called to a what? A living hope. I love that. A living hope. What is this living hope based upon? God's promises, right? Peter says, an inheritance. Right after he says a living hope, he says, here's an example of it. Here's where it comes from. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Love it. Man. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would understand what is coming to them and know the hope that accompanies it. You've got an inheritance It's perfectly fine for you to hope in that. I pray that you would know the hope that that inheritance generates in you because it is a guarantee. It is a sure thing. That's what he's praying here. Phenomenal. 18C, second thing. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This is exactly why I think he's referring to inheritance back in the first part of the verse. He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? But it is a little different. Watch. Okay, so the second thing Paul wanted them to understand, right, according to the knowledge of Christ or in the knowledge of Christ, is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is where it gets a little tricky here. Because I think our minds immediately go to, okay, he wants them to understand that they have inheritance, but he also wants that he's praying that they would understand that they have one and they'd have the hope that accompanies that, but he's also praying that they would recognize what it is. That is not at all what this verse says. So this is where I started pulling out the tiny bit of hair that I have left. Paul prayed that the Spirit would give them an understanding of their status as God's glorious inheritance. Big difference. This is incredible. In 18b, he prayed that they would understand that they have an inheritance. In 18c, he prayed that they would understand that they are an inheritance. That's what he's praying for here. And not just an inheritance, but a what? A glorious inheritance, right? I really like what uh, Warren Wearsby wrote here. He says, this phrase does not refer to our inheritance in Christ, but to his inheritance in us. This is an amazing truth, he says, that God should look on us as part of his great wealth. Just as a man's wealth brings glory to his name, so God will get glory from the church because of what he has invested in us. When Christ, when Jesus Christ returns, we shall be to the praise of his glorious grace. This truth suggests to us that Christ will not enter into his promised glory until the church is there to share it with him. I love that. He prayed for this before he died, and this prayer will be answered. Christ will be glorified in us, and we will be glorified in Him. Knowing this should lead the believer into a life of dedication and devotion to the Lord. End quote. I just want you to think about this real quick. Believers are the glorious inheritance of God. Just... I have never really even pondered that or thought about that the entire time I've been a believer. I mean, I, I, I know that, you know, I, I've read the Scripture and I've thought about it a few times here and there, but I've never really just sort of marinated on that. See, I think that it comes with some awesome weight. You and I, if you're in Christ are the glorious inheritance of God. How valuable we must be to Him. 
He literally treasures us. Oh, that can't be. I know me. If you want to disagree with what Scripture makes clear here, that's fine. Weeks ago, we read in verse 6 that we are accepted by God. That was one of the blessings, right? That was awesome. Knowing that that if we're in Christ, we are accepted by God is, is just an amazing reality for us as people. This morning, we read that we are treasured by God as His inheritance. (laughs) That just went to a whole nother level. That's wow. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would come to know this truth. Why? So that they would begin to discover how valuable they are to God and thus be liberated from every other form of man-centered, performance-driven acceptance. To be accepted is one thing. To be treasured takes it to a whole other level. There is a weight of value on every believer that God has determined. Not me, because we don't in our culture, value human life at all. We extinguish the lives of millions of babies, don't we? We degrade each other with the things that we say or think, and you know, we, we don't put much value on humanity, let alone on believers, and yet we see in the text, and I don't know about you, but I wrestle with self-worth periodically. What does this text tell us? See, it's to liberate us from man-centered, performance-driven acceptance because we are not only accepted, that we are valued, treasured, cherished. As we studied weeks ago, beloved. We are beloved, the beloved children of God. This is just amazing stuff, guys. Look at 19, and it ain't over. Here comes the next salvo. 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Okay, so the third thing Paul wanted them to understand is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What did Paul pray for here? He prayed that the Spirit would give them understanding of God's power. Now he goes on to list Four examples of it in verses 20 to 23. All right? Four examples of it in 20 to 23. That, well, John over here read that text, and it's just like this massive explosion of these. It's like a, a, you know, a, an announcement of how awesome God is. And really, what that is, is it's a four-part explanation or what he's looking to, to prove here. Example number one, resurrection power. Okay, he prays that they would understand the power of God. The first example he gives is resurrection power, verse 20a. Verse 20a, right? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. There it is. The Father used his mighty power to raise Christ from the dead. The Father used His mighty power to raise us from spiritual deadness. This is what He wants them to understand. That the same power that God used, that mighty power to raise Christ, He has used to raise you unto spiritual life, unto these blessings, unto this inheritance, unto this hope, unto this adoption. Resurrection power is power over death. Power over hell. Power over Satan. Power over temptation and sin, right? Every Easter when we preach about resurrection, these are the things we talk about. He rose so that you could have power over death, power over temptation, power over hell, power over the devil, the demons, power over sin. That's what it represents here. 
Resurrection power enables us to wage war against the flesh, against temptation, and against the devil. It liberates us from the fear of physical death, right? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ rising, you know, being raised from the grave has conquered death, and we have no fear of it now. Resurrection power enables us to not only declare victory in Jesus, but to walk in victory with Jesus. When he says, when he says here that he worked in Christ, when he raised the dead, he's telling them, I want you to know resurrection power, and I want you to experience all of this and a bag of chips. Now think about it. In the future, the Father will use his mighty power again to raise us to glorified bodies. Paul wanted them to know this power. That's why he's explaining it. I want you to know the power of God according to the knowledge of Christ. I want you to know the resurrection power, aspect of his power, that you can walk liberated against sin. You can walk liberated in liberation against sin, the devil, hell, and all of these things. That God raised you as he raised Christ. He raised you to spiritual life. You are a victor, not a victim. This is what he's praying for these people. That's the first example, right? Resurrection power. The second example, number two, Appointing power. Verse 20b. And seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. And seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. The Father used his mighty power to appoint Christ, right? To appoint Christ to his right hand as what? High priest, high prophet, high king. The Father used His mighty power to appoint us to salvation, to sonship, to an inheritance, to all of those spiritual blessings. Paul wanted them to know this appointing power, that God uses His mighty power to appoint. As sure as Christ has been appointed to the right hand of God to be high priest, high judge, high king, these things, as sure as that is, our appointing is just as sure as that is. It's, I mean, that's the evidence of it, that he's seated at the right hand right now. The evidence of our appointing is shown through the example of him being seated at the right hand. He appointed him, he appointed us. He has appointed us too. A slightly different way, but there is an appointing power that God uses. It's like every believer he is appointed unto salvation and these blessings and these things. He wants them to understand this. You've been appointed by his mighty power. And to me, that's like the greatest assurance ever. He used his mighty power to appoint us to salvation, these blessings, the inheritance. I mean, I didn't appoint myself to it. And if I did, then I know that I could take myself out of it because I'm flimsy Example three, preeminent power, preeminent power, highest power we would say, ultimate power, but preeminent power is like power above all other power. Verses 21 through 23, listen to this, man, this is just, this is just where we start to, you know, where we hit the brick wall because this is just massive Listen to these statements. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name. This is doxology. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, speaking of Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When I first read that, I went, Mommy, surely we can just glance and skip over this part because I have no idea what any of that means. It's an example of His preeminent power. The Father has given Christ preeminent power over heaven and earth. 
Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father, exercises all rule, right, in power. He exercises all rule, all authority, all power and dominion above every past name, every present name, and every future name. That's what it says. The Father will also give us preeminent power, in a sense, so that we can rule and judge with Christ. God gave, through his mighty power, preeminent power to Christ. Because, and we would say, well, how can he do that? Because Christ is God. Don't forget that Christ is also a man. When you see Christ, you will see the God-man. He is a man, and he is God. And so this appointing and this power and these sorts of things, these, these blessings that the Father has bestowed upon the Son, I think, believe they apply to the human aspect or the humanity. I don't know how it works out. But there is still a, a giving of things from the Father to the Son. Preeminent power is one of them. And he even gives us this preeminent power in a way. I don't want to exalt it above Christ. That would be foolish. But I don't want to diminish it either. Because that would be foolish. Because we will be co-regents, co-rulers, and co-judges in the kingdom to come. Which means we have power. We have preeminent power. We are higher than something else out there. And this will happen when Christ returns. When the preeminent power will be given to us as well. The funny thing is, is that Paul talked about it as if it had already happened. He was so certain of this truth and promise that he wrote this in Ephesians 2.6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. He's talking about as if it's already happened. We know it's coming, but in a way, we're there. Preeminent power is ours already. Paul wanted them to know this power. You may feel powerless, weak, futile, but God has worked His mighty power in your life, not just in terms of salvation, but in terms of many things. This preeminent power is ours as well. Notice with me, also, the phrase, he put all things under his feet. He put all things under his feet, speaking of Christ's feet. The idea here is that Christ is seated in the highest position, higher than all others. And now that just blows my mind because apparently, according to what Paul says in the next chapter, we're seated with him, which means we must be higher. In fact, we studied several weeks ago that how we are higher than the angels. And that's a trip because they're pretty awesome. The idea here is that Christ is seated in the highest position, higher than all others, so high that all people, places, and things, nouns, right, are under his feet. This phrase also denotes judgment. What goes under the feet? A footstool. The Bible often uses a footstool in relation to what? The enemies of God. Psalm 110.1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus was speaking of himself when he quoted that later in Luke. And then we see it again in Acts, early Acts, Acts 2, I believe. Jesus applied this prophetic passage to himself. He's the one that is seated at the right hand. He is the sovereign Lord who is seated at the right hand of the Father and He is waiting for the Father to send Him. And when He comes, He will make all His enemies His footstool. He will rest His feet upon the backs of His enemies. Are you an enemy? Do you have Christ? If not, you're an enemy and you will be a footstool. I don't know about you, but I don't like being walked on. Think of that in terms of eternity. 
And it's much worse than that, believe me. He is also, it says, the head over the church, which is his body, right? The body of Christ. Since Christ is the head and we are the body, does that mean that the enemies of Christ will be placed under our feet? Think about that. I don't know. I mean, he's the head, we're the body, we have feet. Something goes under our feet, it's the footstool, it's the enemies. I'm not convinced that we're supposed to take the footstool thing literally. I don't know, maybe it's a literal thing. I think it's meant to provide a word picture which illustrates the high position and preeminence of Christ, that He will conquer and subdue His enemies and they will be under His feet. I think that's what it means. But we are the body, are we not? We're part of this thing that he's talking about here. And I think that that means that the enemies will be under our feet as well. I don't know for sure how it works. Lastly, notice with me the final phrase, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is... Staggering. What a way to end a prayer. The church is the fullness of Christ. Which means, in a way, and I say this with reverence, I don't understand how it works, but it is what it means, that Christ is, in a way, incomplete until the whole church is gathered to him. Only then will the fullness of his person and the absolute fullness of his glory be revealed when his whole body is gathered to him. Calvin wrote, this is the highest honor of the church that until he is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure incomplete. (laughs) He says, what consolation is it for us to learn that not until we are in his presence does he possess all his parts, nor does he wish to be regarded as complete. And I think he's speaking of right now. This truth, that we are the fullness of Him, and that He is incomplete in some sense, has added so much more value to our existence. It means that Christ needs us! Have you ever thought about that? I know how much I need Christ, but I've never realized how much He needs me! Because little old me is part of making him full. Okay, so, so I'm accepted. That's amazing. I'm treasured as inheritance. That's amazing. And I'm needed. No wonder the scriptures say repeatedly over and over and over, I shall lose none. With that being said, we have come to the end of today's study and this incredible chapter. I have a few ending thoughts for us. Just let the weight of this truth just, it's okay. Just let it come on you. Aren't you glad that Paul recorded his prayer? <laughs> Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. <laughs> just a prayer. This is a prayer. 
And it makes me realize my prayers are like, um, Lord, we're kind of short this month on money. And look, I just prayed to the Lord. Father, we're kind of short on the money in the Spirit. In the name of the Son, I pray, give us the money. These are my little lopsided, shallow, self-centered prayers. And this is Paul's prayer. This is insanity. Not only, and I'm, I'm certainly glad that the Spirit led him to, to write his prayer down for their benefit and for our benefit, but not only is it an amazing prayer, but it is also an amazing template we can use when we pray to the Father, but it is also an amazing source of doctrine. From it, we have learned that true saving faith is always accompanied by love and action. That's what we looked at last week. From it, we have learned that the Holy Spirit can breathe wisdom and revelation, the wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of Christ on us and enlighten us so that we can know the hope of our calling, a calling to not only receive an inheritance, but to be the rich and glorious inheritance of God. From it, we have learned about the power of God, His resurrection power, His appointing power, and His preeminent power. These things belonged to the Ephesians. Paul prayed that the Spirit would help them understand it. And these things belong to us. Do we understand what we have? That wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ and hope and the power of God and all blessings, all the blessings of verses 3 to 14 are ours in the beloved in Christ. Do we realize this? Do we understand that we are, that we have an amazing, glorious inheritance, but that we are the glorious inheritance of God? Let me tell you something, friends. That's a high calling. Do we understand that we are the fullness of Christ and that Christ needs us for completion? The idea here, again, again, I can't emphasize it enough, but that if if one of his children, one saint, one member of the body of Christ, one Christian was lost, he would be rendered incomplete for eternity. All the more reason why none of us can ever be lost. Do you realize this? I can barely get my mind around some of this stuff. I think if we understand these things, if we begin to understand how we're valued, what's been provided for us, what we have in Christ. That's really the, the boil down of this whole chapter one. I, I can't help but believe that our behavior and lifestyle, it'll change. I guess the way we're living now, the way that we behave and act, and uh, just the way that we live in a general sense really reveals whether or not we understand these things. You know, it's... We have orthodoxy, that's the doctrines and the truth, but we should also have orthopraxy, action based on those truths, a particular lifestyle, one of humility and love and grace and mercy and righteousness. Now here's what's insane. Paul spends another two chapters unpacking what believers have in Christ. Chapter 1 was like drinking from a fire hose. And we've got two more chapters of this before we get to the transition in chapter 4, verse 1. He's just going to continue to reveal to the Ephesians and to us what we have in Christ. And at some point, he's going to say, now here's how you're to live in light of this. And i got a challenge for us. May we commit ourselves to praying for one another. Asking the Holy Spirit to continue to breathe wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment on us so that we can understand everything we hear and see. Amen? You may not have um, noticed the common thread or theme in all of our songs this morning. Each one has to do with the greatness of God. He certainly is great, isn't he? 
Ephesians 1 makes this incredibly clear. (laughs) All of we've been talking about is his work for us. He's certainly great, is he not? During communion, I, I want you to confess your sins before God. Do that first. I don't know how you've been tripped up this week or what you've been involved in or what you've been doing. Maybe it's just that you haven't realized some of these things. You devalued yourself and given yourself over to false things that produce false hope or maybe that produce escape or maybe things that dull the emotional, physical, spiritual pain that you've been experiencing. I mean, we all give ourselves over to lesser things from time to time, some of us more than others. Let's confess what we've been doing and how we've been sinning before God. And then let's praise Him for His greatness. Praise Him for His greatness. Praise Him for His love. Praise Him for His grace. Praise Him for His mercy. Praise Him for His kindness and His favor and so on and so on. Let's put into practice what we learned as well, right? Before we do communion, let's pray in the Spirit to the Father in the name of the Son. Jesus Christ.